This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Is it really ever harder to concentrate and pay attention. No doubt the world is getting faster and social media platforms are so good at grabbing attention. But how real is this problem? Does it impact our creativity as well? Uh, Caroline Dicey Jennings is based at the University of California, Merced. She's just co-written a chapter called Attention Technology and Creativity in a book called Scenes of Attention, published by Columbia. So welcome to you, first of all. Thanks so much, Owen. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And and let's just define what we're talking about. I mean, basically, attention is focusing on one issue, right? That's right. So that would be paying attention when you are electively directing attention to something of your interest. And then there's also sometimes what we call bottom-up attention, where your attention is grabbed by something that maybe you weren't intending to attend to. So there are many different forms of attention, but I think the one we think of the most is this directing your attention intentionally. Yeah, concentrating on what you want to concentrate on. And of course, when we've all sat down to write stuff, we know that there are a thousand distractions from the food in the fridge to the latest sort of ping on your phone, right? That's right. Yeah. So there are many different things that might move your attention away from what you're hoping to concentrate on. And tell us what are the implications of the, you know, the, the, the social media platform's capacity to to grab attention, because actually that is the thing that probably best at, isn't it? Yeah, so that's something I think that many of us have noticed is that there's a difference between the sound of your fridge, the sound of your AC, your infrequent doorbell ring. (laughs) There's a difference between those kinds of distractions and the sorts of distractions that are offered by especially social media, but actually many different recent digital technologies. Um, And that is by design. And how do they do that? What have they done that makes them so effective at uh, making you pay attention to them? So there's a really great book that is in the background here by Scholl called Addiction by Design. And it's about how some of these companies based their algorithms on the very same sorts of processes that are used in casinos and the machines in casinos uh, because they are known to be addictive. And one of those one of those features is called intermittent variable rewards. So we know that if if you reward someone, so the reward part is easy. You give somebody something that is rewarding. And in this case, it is a like for example, on social media, we all like to be liked by others. And so getting a like is rewarding. And then a variable, you know, it can be 10 likes or one like. And when there are variable rewards, then you're going to try harder to get those 10 than to get the one. And intermittent means that it's, you can't predict exactly when those those differences are going to show up. So that is what really gets you hooked because you are trying, you're trying really hard to get those high rewards, but it's random or there's some randomness mixed in, which makes it difficult for you to know when you will get them as you just 
try much more frequently than you would if it weren't designed that way. Yeah, so just thinking about X, 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 Twitter. Uh, yes. And, uh, and that's definitely what they do. I, and I'm just trying to work out, is that what every other social media platform does as well? I guess it pretty much is, isn't it? Yeah, they were all built on on intermittent variable rewards. It's like an, you'll notice this if you, uh, if you do a post on social media, you might notice that you don't get all of the likes right as they come in. So you might notice that, oh, it's like it... I think I see a like, but I'm not getting a notification that I have a like. And then a minute or two later, you have three. That is because of this design. They're purposefully batching the likes so that you they come in these kind of unpredictable amounts at unpredictable times. And all, all social media companies have that as a, an inbuilt feature. Right. And, and the parallel you're drawing is with the slot machines in Vegas, right? Yes, exactly. That's right. Yeah. So those are also addictive by design. And that was what this, this book pointed out is that it, all social media companies were intentionally set up that way. Now, there's something else that they're doing to grab our attention. And you, you talk about digital technologies being adaptive. What does that mean? Yeah. So they respond to your preferences. And that is something that they often sell as a feature. They'll say things like, you might have seen, um, you get advertisements that matter to you. You might have seen (laughs) that kind of notice before. That Aren't we lucky that the advertisements can be framed to our own interests instead of of having to see see advertisements that are not pertaining to our interests? But that also makes them more addicting. So when you have things be adapted to your preferences, then they are harder to turn away from. Yeah, and this there's another quality to all of this, which is, you know, I, I I don't know how old you are, but I can certainly say when I when I was a child watching TV before the social media age, I found it quite addictive. You know, as a sort of ten year old or eleven year old or something, you're always glued to the telly watching the sport or whatever. And and I I suspect the advent of social media has made has rendered TV less addictive, has it? Because it's not as engaging as the social media. Mm, yeah, so maybe by contrast, I think you're right. So TV has many of the qualities that the types of the digital world has for us as well. Like it's visual. We are very visual creatures. It's bright. Our screens are, the colors that you can get through screens are are so vivid compared to the colors in the world. And we like vivid colors. <laughs> That's something very attractive to us. So the screens are bright and they're very colorful. Um, and then it's distilled information as well. And we like information. So TV had some of those qualities. And now our interaction with the digital world has that plus all of these things that are connected to our attention, things that are designed to grab our attention. Yeah. And have you been able to, or are you aware of research that's been able to measure the level of addiction to these social media platforms now? Mm, Yeah. So uh, addiction itself is a somewhat controversial topic. Um, some people still think that addiction should only really be used for chemical addictions. So when uh, when we're talking about like addiction to alcohol or drugs or something like that, behavioral addictions such as the addiction to social media are somewhat more controversial. But um, some of the same groups that discuss alcohol addiction have published rates of addiction to the internet. So internet use disorder 
is the equivalent of alcohol use disorder. That's usually how it's framed. Um, and internet use disorder, it has taken over these alcohol and drug addictions in young people. So the youngest demographics are doing much better on alcohol and on drugs in terms of addiction, but they're doing, but they have this new addiction that appears to have replaced it, which is addiction to social media and and the internet. Right. I mean, I thought there was a chemical um, element to social media. I mean, people talk about you getting, is it a dopamine fix or something like that? I don't know what a dopamine fix is, actually. (laughs) I've heard it said that you you, you get something inside, yeah, chemically inside your brain or your body, which is pleasing and which you then chase. Is that right? Well, absolutely. There are anything that has to do with cognition is going to also have to do with chemicals because your brain you know, depends on neurochemistry to, to function. So yes, there are always going to be chemical elements to these things. But I guess the difference here is whether you're ingesting something that, that affects your affects your brain. And in the case of, of this, you're not ingesting something, but you're absolutely right that it, it could still manipulate those chemicals indirectly. You say it could. Do we know that it does? What do we actually know about that? So the work on internet use disorder is behavioral. I'm not sure if anyone has done a cross study of, of neuroscience and behavior looking at brain changes as well as behavioral changes. So usually what they're looking for in these like use disorders are um, whether the person seems able to stop that behavior um, when they have some other thing that's important to them, or they have some other thing that they need to function properly. Like, are they keeping up in their job? Are they keeping up in school? Or are they, do they seem to be kind of like, so attached to this thing that it's damaging their functionality in these other domains. So that's a behavioral understanding. It is, you're right that people talk about dopamine a lot here and dopamine plays a really important role in attention. So I agree with you that it's likely that there is a role for dopamine, but many of these chemicals are not, are not as well understood exactly how they function in humans. It's difficult to do chemical studies of the brain because much of our understanding of human brains is when the brain is closed because, you know, you need to do it looking at the outside through imaging, but to understand neurochemistry, you would need to either alter the neurochemistry by giving the person some sort of pharmaceutical or drug, and then you're limited in what exactly you can conclude about it because it's a little bit of like a blood force thing. Uh, or you need to be able to look more clo- closely at the chemicals themselves, like as they're operating and that you're not just not going to do that in a, in a human being, that's not going to happen. So yeah, the, we don't have as much information about, about neurochemistry as we do about, for example, brain areas. So we, we have a lot of information about like what brain areas are active when you're doing certain tasks. And that's because of neuroimaging. So can you help us at all with what dopamine is? Hmm. Yes. So dopamine is a chemical is, is one of our neurochemicals that, as I said, is, is very closely associated with attention. It plays a really important role in a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is also highly associated with your ability to direct your attention. 
And um, we have receptors in the prefrontal cortex for dopamine um, that are different receptors are sensitive to different amounts of dopamine. So for example, there are some receptors that only would turn on or be active if dopamine is at one level and other receptors that would only turn on and be active if it's at a, at a higher level. One of the things that, that has been found, for example, with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is that people with that disorder and an attention disorder, a disorder that, that makes it difficult for you to d- direct attention voluntarily. Um, and so related to this discussion, people with that disorder, many of them have been found to, to have a genetic difference that affects the one of these dopamine receptors. So they don't detect dopamine as easily as, um, as somebody without the disorder. And so we know that it, the dopamine plays a really important role in directing attention. And we know that these, the, you know, different receptors are doing different, have different roles in this. So for an example of the, of two of the receptors, one of them, when it is active, um, it seems to allow us to maintain our attention on whatever we're currently on. And then a level higher when you have more dopamine available, then you're able to switch attention from one item to another. So if you have a, a bigger dopamine hit, that might make you more likely to switch from one thing to another quickly. Um, and a lower dopamine level might allow you to stay on something. So it's a, it's actually, a, there's not a straight story about what exactly dopamine is doing because it depends on the level. Um, and it also depends on your history as an organism and what sorts of familiarities you have with different tasks and things like that. Well, it's actually f- fascinating listening to you about this and, and it's very, very striking that you're saying, you know, you don't think there's a lot of research about this in relation to social media use. I mean, it, it, I just wondered whether Facebook and, and Twitter and all those people have commissioned that kind of research and have an understanding of this they've not shared. But you wouldn't know, I guess. I don't. I wouldn't think so. I don't think at that level. I, I think, and I, I don't know, but I, I think that much of the research that's done by social media companies is behavioral rather than neural. Um, I know that there are goals to, to make kind of neural devices um, of a certain type, but they're, they're pretty like low level. They're not chemical. Um, they're, they're things that would measure your, um, like an, basically like an EEG, like an electroencephalography measure or something like that, um, or give feedback of that type, like electromagnetic feedback. But that's really different from like a chemical study. But, you know, there may be, there may be studies on this. I am not familiar with them, um, but I'm not going to rule out the possibility that they're out there. I'm going to look after this conversation and see <laughs> okay. if there that's are. It seems interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, now the next sort of point to get onto is, you know, let's say you're trying to write the chapter of your book and you've got your phone next to you and it's it's distracting you. You're seeing, you're seeing messages come up, you're seeing notifications come up and it, it's sort of grabbing your attention. That then I guess the next question is, if that happens for, for five years or for a long period, does it then even if your phone is not on the desk, does it impair your capacity to concentrate over the long term? Okay, so that is where there is a lot of debate in the community, but my co-author and I, Shadab Tepatapayan, 
and I argued that it does. So what it has been established, I think, well enough, is that there is a short-term effect on your attention by those things. So we know the way we build up in this chapter is we know that these companies are purposefully distracting you in this way. We know that they're purposefully trying to grab your attention, that they've designed themselves to work that way. And then we know that in the short term, that they do just that, that they make it hard for you to concentrate on what you want to concentrate on. And then the, the open question is whether engaging in that, as you say, for five years, whether that in the long run will make you less able to direct your attention to items of your choice. And what my co-author and I argue is that, yes, it, it does do that. Um, and our argument is based on there is some evidence that this happens. It is, it's not as strong as the evidence for short-term, but there is there is some evidence for long-term effects. And that is what you would expect because our brains are adaptive. They change with respect to what we, how we engage. And one of the ways that they are adaptive is with something that people call like exploration, the trade-off between um, exploitation and exploration. So one way of the way that people talk about this is exploitation is when you, if you think of an animal in the wild, it comes across like an amazing almond tree. Exploitation would be, it's just hanging out near that almond tree, eating every almond from the tree. And then exploration would be when it's like, you know what, there's probably even better trees out there. There's maybe a a peach tree down the way. I'm going to leave this almond tree. I'm going to explore and see if I can find something better. So we know that animals are always making trade-offs between exploration and exploitation and that they have a kind of balance of the two. There's not a right answer for when you should look around and when you should stay, but that balance, like your, uh, the balance that you tend to have, that is adaptive. And what we argue in the chapter is that we think long-term what's happening is that that balance is getting shifted in favor of exploration. So because what people are finding with social media and just digital recent digital technologies in general is that if they continue to look, then they're going to get more payoffs, then it, it's more worth it to them to just keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, rather than staying with the thing that they have even staying with the thing that they have, it, 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 everything is so short and bitty and inconsequential that even then it wouldn't be, a, a, it, there'd be a difference to past practice, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, that's right. If, if we're talking about only within the realm of social media, but even if you, even if you contrast, you know, offline behaviors, it's harder for you to read a book. If this is part of our argument is that after five years of this kind of thing, it might be harder for you to do something like read a book than it would be to just stay on your phone. Well, I must say, I mean, I do find that. I mean, yeah. I find that, that that it's it's you know, I used to tear through books. I I do find it harder. I mean, and and I guess that's quite a common experience. Yes, and I I think that's right. And I think here it's worth maybe saying that in our chapter. While we know that in general, people, when they talk about this phenomenon, they talk about it as necessarily negative. And of course, there are negative things about it. We step back from from saying that this is necessarily negative. And that's because there isn't a right answer as to what the balance between those two things should be. 
it depends on your environment. If you are in an environment that has peach trees and almond trees, you know, like trees everywhere, it doesn't really, you know, it's good for you to, you know, to, to look around the environment and to try different things. So whether it is good for us to have that kind of attitude of, of looking around at many things, I don't think that it's obvious that that's bad for us. And I think that that's a conversation that we need to have as a, as, you know, a social group, as a society. Um, what is, is this what we want for ourselves? So if it's manipulation, there's something bad with being manipulated, sure. Um, but the result are we happy with that result? I think that I think there's some possibility that we might prefer to be to be creatures that are constantly looking for new things and enjoying new things. There's a there's a way of spinning that that could be positive. I guess that's my point. You're right. There could be, but I, I can't believe many Nobel Prize winners of physics are going to be uh, distracted in this way. Well, maybe. But but what, tell us about the creativity bit of this because you, you 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 know that's part of your chapter. And well, first of all. What do you mean by creativity? Before we ask whether this social media uh, uh, practice, you know, grabbing of attention, is affecting it. Yeah. So this this chapter is a collaboration between me and Shadab Tabatabayan, who is a graduate student in the program that I've been in, um, and this project really started with me thinking, well, maybe maybe these digital technologies have an impact on our attention that's negative. It's making us hard, it, harder for us to concentrate. But maybe that has a positive impact on our creativity because many people think of creativity as something um, that's related to novelty, that if we're able to come up with new things that we're more creative. So if we're kind of moving our attention around everywhere, we're going to be more likely to find those new things. So that's that's kind of how I went into this collaboration. And Shadab, who goes by Shadi, she convinced me that actually that it's unlikely to work that way. And that's because creativity researchers have known for forever that creativity is not just about novelty. It's also about utility. So novelty alone is, is more akin to like randomness but we don't think that just random, <laughs> random things are creative. We think that when we talk about creativity, we're usually referring to something that's surprising and new, but according to some sort of value. So if we're talking about creative art, it's something that's new, but also beautiful or interesting or something like that. It's not just random new. And so those are the two values that creativity researchers use in their research to to test for the presence of creativity is uh, novelty and utility. They have different ways of, of framing the two words, but those are always present in that kind of research. And so, I'm a bit surprised she yeah. convinced you because it, it seems yes. to me that that uh, you know, if there were lots of stimuli, which is basically what you're yes. talking about, you could then add the utility on later. So it, it, it would not. I mean, I wouldn't think there would be a correlation between. Yeah, the yeah. So, oh, and so I agree that. So many researchers have thought of it as maybe happening in two phases. Maybe you have one phase of kind of idea generation where you're coming up with all these new ideas and you're really excited. And then the second phase is evaluation where you're going through the ideas to see which of these are good ideas of these random ideas. Um, And I think that that can apply to something like uh, many people believe that they have sort of 
drug-induced creativity. <laughs> so they believe that if they drink alcohol or do certain drugs, that they are more creative. And that probably fits into this two-phase system. So you have one phase where you're less inhibited because of the drug use and you're coming up with all kinds of ideas. But if you've ever been with someone who's smoking pot or who's drunk, you know many of those ideas are not good. <laughs> and so they have to wait for the later phase when they are not you know, under the influence in order to evaluate the ideas that they came up with in that kind of more create, you know, more free phase, let's call it that. But one of the things that, that Shadi has done in her research is when she looked at lots and lots and lots of articles about creativity and trying to find a common neurophysiological basis for the like peak creativity, like the very best of creativity. What she found was that this happens when there's a closer relationship between those two phases of generation and evaluation. And yes, you can art, you know, pull them apart artificially through drugs or something like that. But when what she says is something like this is not her hypothesis, but this is one of the hypotheses she's been influenced by is called neural flattening. So we normally have um, a relationship between what they call these two networks in the brain, one that's task positive when we're focused on a specific task and default mode network when we're not focused on a specific task, but we're just kind of uh, making associations between the things we've learned, thinking about our memories, thinking about ourselves, that sort of thing. So we're going between very focused on a task and sort of reflecting or mind wandering or something like that. Those are anti-correlated in the brain. So if you are focused on a task, you tend not to be mind wandering in that moment. Um, and when you are mind wandering, you're not focused on a task. So those are the one goes up when the other goes down. What she found in this review is that that anti-correlation is flattened in peak creativity, which means that there it's not the case that it goes from one to the other, that you're being engaged in a task and mind wandering, that those come closer together. So creativity is kind of this like reflection, generation, evaluation, all at once. Um, and that was what I was convinced by is yes, you can have creativity in these other ways, like going from one phase to another, that's possible. But if you want to be truly creative, it's better to, to have this closer connection to, to, for example, have the ideas that you're coming up with be informed by what you're looking for the ideas for. <laughs> so yeah, so fewer yeah. fewer stimuli, but sort of process them more, yes. more quickly and more yes. thoroughly. Does that but, make but, sense? Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, but it's interesting. But can can you give an example of these processes and the two different sort of approaches? Did, did did you get that far in 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 the reading? Is there is there is there sort of are there case studies? Do you mean with like the neural flattening? Like, are there case studies of? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Can you can you illustrate in some way? I mean, maybe not. The, 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 this process of of doing everything quickly. Uh, you know. Uh, mm. uh, getting the stimuli and the evaluation closer together? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. So some of the studies that that I started being really interested in include, um, there's someone named Charles Lim, who was at Johns Hopkins for a while and did this research with collaborators on jazz improvisation. And so had people in an fMRI scanner either... Um, come up with like a, using a keyboard, come up with a, a piano jazz improvisation, or I think the other option, the control was maybe playing a piece of music that they knew 
um, or or maybe they gave them a piece of music. I can't remember the specifics of that. Um, but when they're contrasting, like playing a piece of music that was not Im- improvised, one that was either known or, or read directly with the improvisation, what they found is that there was a difference in prefrontal activity. And prefrontal activity is very closely related to this task positive network. Um, this And it's very closely related to attention. So even though you might think that improv would require a lot more attention, what they found was actually that it that there was something else going on. And when I first looked at that study, I really focused on the lack of attention, the lack of prefrontal activity. And I thought that that was evidence for what I was saying at the start, this idea that creativity is sort of opposed to attention. And so we might actually be more creative with less attention. But those were the very studies that Shadi started from, started to look into and found that that, that was not really the full story about what was going on in those studies. And further than that, I, I can't remember the details of how exactly that process went. Um, but but yes, yeah, there are there are a number of neuroscientific studies about those kinds of phenomenon, like improv. There's also one on rap improv. Um, and when she looked at those, she found that it wasn't a simple story of just reduced prefrontal activity. It was better described with this flattening hypothesis. I mean, we're straying a bit from your topic, but I, I, do, I do remember listening to an account of uh, Crick and Watson, I can't remember which one it was, talking about the double helix. And it was it was very interesting. And, it, and it's not the only time this has happened, I think, that they'd been working on it and couldn't just couldn't work out what the pattern of these uh, genes were. And then it came to him in a dream, or you know, in a semi-somnolent state, this uh, double helix, and he, he said, "That's it. I got it." And and uh, I think there are other examples of of people who've been thinking about something a lot, and then have a moment of revelation in semi-sleep, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. But that that doesn't tell us like what what cognitive state led to that, even if from their like phenomenology, from their experience. Well, first of all, you know, memory is really faulty. And we know that when people say narratives about their life, that those are very selective. <laughs> but I, I agree, there are many different accounts of creativity like this, where they say, I had this aha moment. Um, and rather than, you know, shush that away, I want to say that that must happen sometimes. So setting aside these worries about about narrative and and the way we describe our lives, we still wouldn't know what's happening in the States before that. So for for those people, when they had that moment in the dream, were the weeks preceding that, were they in this kind of weird cognitive state where they were sort of thinking about it in the back of their mind all the time, um, in, in the very way that Shadi might describe this kind of flattening way, we don't know that. All we know is that the result of that <laughs> was it coming to their to the mind suddenly. Um, yeah, but, it doesn't sort of speak to your point either way. Really, right, though, yeah, so. because the, the cognitive processing does not necessarily happen consciously. So there's a difference between the mechanism, the neural mechanism, and what we experience. And they don't always line up. 
Yeah. So having earlier set told us that you didn't want to sort of put value judgments on this, and yeah. you know, you, you, you're not. I mean, which I mean, I think quite a few of us would want to probably, but you know, you, you don't, yeah. you're very, very, very valiantly not wanting to. Uh, you know, but at the same time, you are then saying, well, actually, you know, when you go on to the next bit about creativity, it probably is damaging. It undermines creativity, and I mean, I, I think we can all agree that's not great. Yes. So at the individual level, I think that it is likely to damage creativity. However, there are lots of provisos on that. And one of them is we differ, people differ with respect to um, this exploration, exploitation bias. So you might be someone already who is just kind of exploitation biased. You're someone who likes to stick with things for a long time and not to explore. You don't like change. If you're that kind of person, if this, um, if engaging with social media kind of pushes you to be more of an explorer, then for you, it might increase your creativity if it's getting that balance to something closer to what works for creativity, if that makes sense. So it depends on the individual. On average, yes, it, it would be damaging, but for specific individuals, it might be better. Also, your exposure to different things, there could be a route through the content to an increase in creativity. So even if your individual creativity is your ability to be creative may be lessened, what you're exposed to, it may be that you're more likely to come across things that are inspiring because of, because of what you're engaged with. Um, so it may be that you're more likely to see an article or an idea that is inspiring to you, even if your ability to be creative is lessened. And then what I found really fascinating when I was working with Shadi on this is thinking about creativity at the social level. We didn't get very far along this track, but I do think it's possible that even if the individuals in the system have less creative ability, it could be that the social system itself has more creative ability. So it could be that as a group, so that same kind of dynamic of, you know, the task positive network and the default mode network, there could be something like that happening at the group level where there's some individuals who kind of play the role of, of exploit, 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 other individuals who play the role of explore, 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 and that when they are really connected to one another, that it's more, it's more possible to have things happen at the group level. And I know that that's not fully satisfactory because I haven't really, we never were really able to work this out completely. But I just, I, I feel like I see that possibility on social media too. The connection between people is stronger because you're willing to just drop everything and pay attention to what someone's saying. You're more connected to that person. And so it may be that that connection leads to, to group effects that are interesting and new. Yeah, social effect, but it might also just be a democratization of stimuli, right? So there's more and more people who yes. have got access to stimuli which they didn't have before. Yes, yeah, that's true. And and you know, it's not uh, we're not freely engaging with one another, especially on there was a a Bloomberg article today about uh, X and whether whether there's an ethical argument against using X, which is really funny for Bloomberg, but. Um, the ethical argument was that more and more the algorithms are pointing people toward violent content. And, you know, it's not what we are, what we are treated to on social media is not neutral. It's not like we're simply connected to other people um, and we're all given a, a fair shot, the kind of 
democratic fair shot, actually the algorithms are favoring certain kinds of content. And in some cases that can be very negative. And I, I take that person's argument that if that is something that X is doing, if X is purposefully favoring violent content, I mean, that would be, that would be devastating, right? Like that would be really bad for grim. our social system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it does take me on to my, my final question actually, which was, yeah. are these social media companies getting better at this? You know, they, they've made these huge advances in what the last, uh, 15 years, let's say, in, in learning how to grab attention. Are they still getting better at that at the same pace? Or is it your impression that, 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 that their progress is slowing off? I think that they are putting an enormous amount of research into how to continually improve this. So w- whether they are getting better at it, I think that they are getting better at it in terms of they are getting better at manipulating attention. Absolutely. Are they getting better in terms of the results on people? I mean, we are also, humans are intelligent and adaptive and many people have noticed this. You've noticed it. I've noticed it. We've noticed the impact on ourselves and what some other news articles that I'm seeing are that people are more and more dropping social media. They're turning away from these like legacy social media sites. I have moved on to blue sky from from X for some of the reasons that I already mentioned. And I think many of the people who have gone to Macedon or Blue Sky or whatever, they're they're enjoying being a little less connected. They're kind of more niche social networks. They're still getting some of the value from them being connected to other people without the kind of explosive <laughs> attention grabbing stuff that, that they had before and preferring that. So they may be they may be getting better at attention manipulation, but I also think people are getting better at um, managing social media and whether or not they can continue to do that without any kind of regulation, I think is an interesting question. I, I I would prefer to see this discussed at a government level. I think that, you know, we talk about drug use, alcohol use because of its addictiveness. We don't talk about these things at the regulation level yet with internet use disorder. But that is a conversation I think should that should be had. It is damaging. Well, we to don't. Some but people. I, yeah, I, yeah. But the Chinese do actually, and and right. uh, it's very striking. I suspect they're just ahead of the West on this. That you know they are now limiting uh, the amount of time that children can spend online it it might seem very authoritarian and restrictive Mm -hmm. but it's actually a public health issue too and right yeah it's it's funny when i i I do classes and we we talk about um you know online regulation and it it, you know americans balk at the idea of being told how many hours they could be online but uh i have to say at the end of the class some of them think well yeah (laughs) maybe the chinese have got a point yeah, so Especially I don't I don't know children. what the solution would look like for us for the very reasons you're saying. Like I don't know what Americans would stomach, but I do think that we should be having those conversations. Like this does not have to be treated at the individual level. Um, this is a social level issue, not an individual level issue. So we should be having, you know, society level discussions about it, government level discussions about it, I think. Um, but ha- that hasn't happened yet. And still people seem to be turning away to some extent. So I think we don't know yet what the long-term impact will be because people are adaptive too. It's also worth saying that the New Books Network has long interviews which people listen to. I think uh, the the, the analysis of all the the, the data they get shows that uh, 
this 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 particular audience over which I might say of downloaders over fifty percent of PhDs rather amazing right, yeah. uh, they, they they you know it's like long form journalism in, in in you know with these long articles that they have found a niche in this world of social media so there are some people who are getting out of it that way yeah right yeah so it hopefully for at least some people it will be a tool that is valuable to them that they are able to adapt to their interests i think i do still worry about those 10 percent for whom it's become a medical issue <laughs> you know like that is that's worth paying attention to even if some people are able to to manage it it still might be worth more attention to those well, look, thank you very much for telling us about it. Absolutely fascinating. And that's uh, Caroline Dicey Jennings on attention, technology and creativity. Thank you. Thanks so much, Owen. It was great talking to you.